So I, I love testimonies. I love to hear stories of how God has rescued people, how he has reached into our lives and interrupted our daily goings, and he's rescued us. And um, if, if I've had the pleasure to spend some one-on-one time with you, one of the questions that I probably asked you or likely asked you is, what's your testimony? How did you get here today? So I love these stories. At our, uh, at our previous church before Jolene and I came here, we, uh, we did something. The way that we celebrated communion is similar to the early church. We would have a meal, and we'd all come together one Sunday a month, We'd bring food together and we'd sit down for dinner. And then in the course of that, we would break bread and have the wine. And so we had what we called these love feasts. And an integral part of that was that someone from our congregation would share their testimony and their story. And it was so awesome because we got to hear all sorts of different stories. Stories from stay-at-home moms to people who worked in finances, who had gained everything and lost it all. People who had gained everything and kept everything we would hear from uh, just just a myriad of different different people uh, about all the different aspects, how how Christianity was changing the way that they viewed uh, parenting, the way that they viewed their work, all these different things. And so it, it's amazing because all of them were the same story, just told in different ways. All of them were pointing to the way that God was rescuing people in this world. I imagine that a large portion of our time and glory when we're in heaven will be spent listening and sharing testimonies, hearing the stories of what was it like for you? What happened? Can you imagine getting to meet Abraham and say, Abraham, what were you thinking as you were walking up that hill with Isaac? Like what was in your heart? I know that you were thinking, okay, God must raise him from the dead, but what was really going on in your heart? And when you saw the substitute, what did you think? Right? Or when you discovered that your seed was God himself who came to rescue you, what did you think of that? Like there, There's going to be all these amazing stories. Or think of Moses to say, what was it like to stand before Pharaoh and defy him with God on your side? Or maybe what was it like when you discovered that God would not permit you to go into the promised land because you struck the rock? There's going to be so many dynamic stories from different sides. And amazingly, these saints will want to know your story also. Your story of how God rescued you. Moses saying, Che, tell me about your story. How did God rescue you? So I think, again, in glory, we'll spend so much of this sharing our testimonies. I also love testimonies because I think they are an amazing evangelistic tool. Because the Bible talks about some really difficult things. You know, it talks about sin and hell and judgment. And those are extremely uncomfortable to talk about. I love evangelism. I've done a lot of evangelism. But even though I've done a lot of it, that's still really difficult. But what's amazing about a testimony is it allows you to point the finger at yourself. You can say, I was convicted of this. I saw my own need of a Savior. And by pointing the finger at yourself, it's a very gentle way to share those hard aspects of the Scriptures. In uh, college, I had a friend. Uh, his name was Bryn. He was, uh, he was sort of a, a nominal Muslim and so, like, we'd, we'd be working late at night, and we'd be getting pizza or something, and we'd be like, oh, do I eat the pepperoni, or do I not eat the pepperoni, because he's kind of marginal. And so, but it was great opportunities for these sort of conversations, religious conversations, to come up. And I got to share my testimony with him several times. And I got to share with him my own experience of being convicted of my sin, seeing that God was just and that he had to hold people accountable and seeing that I was a transgressor of his law and that if God is loving and if God is just, as the Bible says, that I would be condemned to hell and that Jesus stepped in and rescued me. And I was able to say, Brynn, you have a conscience. God has given you a conscience. He, you know that you've done wrong. Even if you, even if you have your own standard, By your own standard, you know you've transgressed it. And like me, both of our religions say that God is just. And you know, just like me, that means you would go to hell. And I was able to say some of these really hard statements with him. And one time we had a conversation. He said, John, my God says that you should go to hell 
your God says that I should go to hell. And I think that's totally unfair because I know that there's something different about you. I was able to have these very difficult conversations with him, but because I was able to point the finger at myself and say, this is what's true of me, and I know it's true of you too, he was able to have respect, and we could have these hard conversations in a very productive manner. And so I love testimonies, again, because of their evangelistic power. Now, Jolene and I, my wife, Jolene, have very different testimonies. Uh, I was a sort of radical transformation testimony. Uh, or I, I was a very radical transformation. When I was converted to Christianity, it was very sudden, and it was a very visible change. Jolene, on the other hand, had a very different testimony. Her, trans, her transformation was much slower. And I think that we tend to, we all tend to sort of see these two different types of testimonies. Like there's a testimony where it's very radical, and there's a testimony that's sort of the, well, I grew up in church, I got saved uh, when I was a kid, and I don't know, maybe I don't feel like it's very powerful. I don't feel like it really testifies much to what God has done. And what I want to do in this sermon is I want to take you through a couple steps, very simple. Uh, We're just going to go through the book of John And the first thing that I want to do is I want to show you that every conversion is an absolute miracle, that your salvation is a miracle. And then I want to give you a couple tools to maybe say, okay, how can we look at our testimonies again and maybe expand what that means, expand how we view God's salvation so that you can walk away, hopefully by the end of this sermon, saying, wow, my testimony is awesome. Or at least I can relook at it and say, I I want to find that awesome story in my testimony. So to kind of give an overview, uh, I want to start with Jolene's testimony. But I want to tell her testimony the way that I think most of us are tempted to view testimonies. So Jolene grew up in a non-Christian family, uh, but they were supportive of her going to church. Uh, they didn't lead by example or anything, but they said, okay, if that's what makes you happy, go do it. So in preschool, she started going to church because she got to draw, and it was just fun. And then in fourth grade, she joined this organization called Missionettes, and Missionettes is sort of like a Christian version of Girl Scouts. And in sixth grade, she went to a summer camp when she heard a very simple message, and the message was, going to church does not make you a Christian, your parents being Christian does not make you a Christian, but you need a relationship with Jesus. And she in some way responded to this. There was possibly some change. We think maybe that could be when she's saved, but we're not even really sure. So she went through high school. She never went through the typical rebellion like the world would see in teenagers. She went to a Christian college, never got into partying or drinking, married a Christian husband, and kind of went on. And so that's, that's her testimony. Maybe a little tempting to say, oh, okay, that's kind of bland. Like, how does that speak to this power of God? Like, nothing major happened. My story, on the other hand, is very different. Um, I grew up in a church-going home. And as a kid, I, uh, I invited Jesus into my heart 472 times and a half. The half was just to make sure that I was sincere enough. Um, but I had done this, and looking back now, I see that, that really what I was doing is I had heard that without Jesus in your heart, you would go to hell. Uh, That was terrifying to me, and I wanted this good thing called heaven. So I did this, and basically I did this little thing where I figured that if I was sincere enough, God would have to fulfill his promises. And so I'm using this little thing to sort of manipulate God. But what I see now is I'd never abandoned hope in myself, and I'd never really trusted in Jesus. It was basically I didn't, you know, I wanted to avoid this thing, and so I was just using these words. Um... Very convinced that I was not saved at that moment in my life as a child. Uh, So going through elementary school, I had a very difficult time in elementary school. Uh, I was the subject of a lot of um, torment and ridicule and and abuse uh, from students and teachers alike. It was very gross uh, what happened. my parents became very concerned. Uh, it was so bad that one day I 
I said, I just want to go to school and kill them all. Um, at this time, there was no law uh, saying that a male could be harassed. So I was actually the first, I was the first case of a uh, civil rights um, complaint in which a male was being harassed because prior to that it was only females could be harassed. But again, this came from students, from teachers. Uh, my life was miserable. I, I, I hated it. So my parents, very concerned, they pulled me out of school, uh, put me in a private school, and uh, around middle school, I met a friend named Kyle. So Kyle invited me to this party one night to go to a campfire and I go to this campfire and I'm sitting around with my friend, with, with these people that I'm just meeting. They're drinking. They're having a good time. Kyle is crazy. He's jumping over the fire. He's telling jokes. Everyone is there because he organized it. He's the life of the party and he wanted to hang out with me. And I spent the next couple days hanging out with him and we would go on to become best friends. But that did something in my heart. I was longing for a sense of acceptance. I was longing for to be wanted, to be popular, to be accepted, to be important. And here is the life of the party, wanting to eventually be best friends with me. So we went headlong into hedonism. And about this time, I also have a significant memory that I was sitting in Sunday school, and I remember this this message in Sunday school where the Sunday school teacher said, I don't remember, I think maybe the topic was about premarital sex or something, but I, I remember that this, this teacher said, you will never have any fun sinning. Jesus is the only way you'll be happy. Sin is no fun. And I just thought, wow, this woman is so naive. She does not get the world. Your Christianity, it must work for you. I'm good and happy with that. But I can tell you from experience, going to a keg party and getting wasted is a huge amount of fun. And having these friends and this acceptance really brings me happiness. This woman is clueless. That, that was my thought. And so I really drifted away and I drifted even deeper and deeper into hedonism. And as I graduated, as I graduated... I had a nice job compared to my friends, and my, my life, I guess, purpose began, became to try everything at least once. Some things I tried many, many more than once, but, but nothing was off limits to me. It was whatever would give me pleasure. Another significant event in my life, as I remember in my hometown, we're, we're by the lake, uh, we're, we're sitting uh, next to the sand volleyball courts in the park by the lake, and, and uh, we're throwing a keg party that night, and people are calling me up, and I'm meeting new friends. And this is back in the day when your cell phone would only hold like 135 phone numbers, and then it would run out of memory. And I'm sitting there deleting people so that I can add new friends in. And I felt such a sense of accomplishment. I was like, yes, this is what I deserve. After what I went through, after what I went through, people appreciate me for the little bit of time that they need the party or they need a bag of drugs or they need something. They come to me and they say, John, what's happening? What do we do? And so I was important. I was accepted. I had friends. I had what I had longed for as a child that so, I mean, it was, it was horrific what I went through, and this was my solution to that. So in a very similar way uh, that God slapped Saul off his horse on the way to Damascus, uh, God came into my life and totally interrupted my plans on April 6, 2004, at 2 in the morning, I come home from the bar and I turn, on the, I turn on internet radio and I hear this evangelist. And he convinces me, this evangelist convinces me of my sin. He convinces me that I've waged war against God, that God is just. He loves his glory. And because he loves the world, he loves his glory, he's a just, holy God, he would have to punish me. And I became convicted, convicted that that was right, that I deserved to go to hell. And then he convinced me of the cross and what the cross had done for me, that Jesus Christ himself 
had taken my place and rescued me. And my transformation was so visible, so instant. It was, it was life-changing, right? Everything that I held dear suddenly became foreign, and everything that was foreign suddenly became dear. I started to read the Bible. I had a thirst for the Bible. I still wanted to hang out with my friends. But I'd go out to the bar, and I'd look around, and I'd be like, well, I'll just hang out, maybe not drink, and be like, this is all dead. Like, these are dead men's bones walking around. And it just haunted me, and I, I, I was so, so burdened by it that it was no enjoyment anymore. I tried to, I tried to share with about six of them what had happened, and their response was, dude, who's paying you? What happened? It was such a negative response that I became so fearful, and I ran away. I ran away to a Christian college where I could have Christian friends, and eventually that led to me meeting my wife. But my transformation, again, was, was a night and day transformation. It, it occurred overnight. Now, I think there's a temptation, again, between maybe one that's typical, a testimony that's typical of what Jolene had and one of, like I had, for us to view them is maybe different in substance. Maybe there's something like like somehow mine was a bigger transformation. But what I want to do is, again, I want to help us filter our experiences through the lens of Scripture. So I want to look at what the Bible says your salvation is so that we can understand, okay, this is what the Bible says my, my conversion was. And it was a miracle. That's what it was. And then maybe I want to give us a couple thoughts that would help us expand our understanding of our testimony so that we could come to see our stories, no matter what they are, as amazing. So let's turn to John chapter 11, where we're going to see a picture of our salvation. So turn to John chapter 11. Okay, so in John chapter 11, there's two women who live in the city of Bethany with their brother, uh, where their brother Lazarus also lives. Mary, who's the woman who would anoint Jesus with the perfume and wash his feet with her hair. Uh, she's one of the sisters and her sister uh, Martha. And when their brother Lazarus becomes sick, they send word to Jesus and say, saying, Lazarus is sick. And so Jesus, because he loves them, it says in verse Verse 5, Jesus hangs out and he hangs back. He doesn't rush to the scene like we'd expect, but he has something bigger planned. So in verse, verse, when he finally shows up, he's four days late. So in verse 21, Jesus is late. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha says to him, I know he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So I think Martha doesn't get it here, and I'm going to explain why. So remember, this is in the book of John, where John is revealing uh, Jesus to be the fulfillment of all these different things. It begins the book by saying Jesus is the very word which brought the world into existence. And then you have these whole series of I am statements where Jesus is revealed to be something greater than the symbols And so to the crowd of hungry people, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I think food is such an amazing symbol which God has woven into the tapestry of creation. Because here's what food tells you. You as a human are needy for something outside of yourself. Every day you need to go outside of yourself or you will die. Without food you will die. And so that's what the manna in the desert was supposed to teach the Israelites. And here Jesus is saying, food, what it pointed to, what the manna in the desert pointed to was me. I am 
the bread of life. To the blind man, he says, I am the light of the world. And here, to Martha, it's amazing. Martha has a misconception. She says, oh, yeah, yeah, the resurrection. Sure, that's an event in the last day. I know it's coming. And Jesus says, no, it's not merely an event. It's a person. It's me. I am the resurrection. What a bold, what, a, what an amazing statement that Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And what he's trying to get these people to see is, wait, the resurrection is standing in your midst. And in the next verses, in verse 32, Mary and the Jews who are mourning with them just don't get it. Because they keep on going like, oh, he's dead. He's in the grave. He's here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, and they keep on mourning. So let's read that. 32. Now when Mary comes, uh, came to see Jesus, uh, to see where where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus heard her weeping and the Jews who had come also with her weeping, he was deeply moved or upset or indignant in his spirit and greatly troubled because, again, they're not getting it. The resurrection is in your presence. And he said to... Um, he said... Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord... By this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So this is, this is an awesome story of Jesus calling a dead person with his mere voice, out of the grave. And this is a picture of your salvation. And I think I should at least address, because nothing that we've read here actually says that this is a picture of your salvation. So I should address that question, why should you believe that this verse or this, this chapter describes what happened to you? I'll give you three reasons. John systematically uses these pictures to describe our salvation. The second is that the Bible explicitly says that you were dead and have been made alive. So Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our fruit. So it's inclusive. Every one of us were those dead men. We all once lived that way, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in his mercy, because of his great love for which he has loved us, even now when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So the Bible explicitly says this, and you can look to other, other verses also, where it says that this, that this picture, this symbol of Lazarus coming out of the grave, is not merely, merely a picture, but is an actual description of your salvation. Uh, and just to show that I'm not cherry-picking, in the same way, 2 Corinthians uh, 4 says the same thing of the blind man, uh, being uh, 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 being healed and seeing the light when when God uh, restored his vision. Second uh, Corinthians four. I'll just skip to verse six. Um, well, in verse four it says that we have been blinded um, by uh, from seeing 
the gospel. And in verse 6, God says, Let light shine out of darkness. He has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So these, these pictures that John is using is, is actually descriptive of a reality of your salvation. And finally, the third reason that I think that you should view this as a picture of your salvation is because of church history. Godly men have universally agreed that John's depictions of Jesus' miracles here are supposed to be understood not merely in terms of demonstrating the power and authority of Christ. They do do that. They say that Christ is powerful, that he has authority over this world. But more than that, they're also depictions of the nature of our salvation. And we sang this beautiful hymn, I love that third verse that we sang today at the very end, And Can It Be? Uh, where Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley liked to write doctrine into his hymns because in a world before you had very cheap media to spread, uh, before you had very high literacy rates, songs were an awesome way for your congregation to learn truths about Scripture. And this verse, it gives me chills every time I sing it. It's so awesome. Long lay my imprisoned, or long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. My eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a beautiful beautiful depiction of what God has done in our lives because what God has done is he has spoken into the darkness he has called into the grave and called you forward from death to life what can a dead man do nothing Lazarus did not even have the ears to hear or the nerves to transmit or the synapses to understand the call when God said Lazarus come forth He was a dead man without even the ability to hear the call. Yet God's voice called him out. That's a miracle. And again, uh, just to show that I'm not cherry picking, we can be reminded of John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus says, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Proof again that your salvation is a miracle. I don't by any means want to claim that this is an exhaustive theological uh, exposition of these verses because I'm flying extremely fast. But Nicodemus had it right when he's like, Jesus, this makes no sense. I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. What you're saying is impossible. Or when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. With man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so I I just want to make the point here that your testimony or your story of how God saved you is a story about a miracle. Somewhere in there, it is a miracle. And the last verse that I want to do to point this out is where God or where Jesus explicitly says this in John chapter 6, verse 44. When he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what Jesus is saying here is that us coming to Jesus is by definition a miracle because it cannot occur without the divine intervention of the Father into the world to change the course of events in his way for his glory It is a miracle. That's the definition of a miracle. When God busts into this world and he and he imposes his will on it for his glory, for our good. So all that is to say that no matter what your story is, your story is a miracle. It is a miracle which should get us super excited about our testimonies because your testimony is a story of a miracle. Now, That's maybe a little bit of a challenge uh, because sometimes it can be hard to think that way. Maybe we're like, okay, my, my, my transition was so slow or maybe I don't even know the day. So I feel like it's not very helpful for me simply to say, okay, let's, let's view our experience through the lens of scripture. This is what you need to see in it without giving you some tools as to how we can see that. So how do you see your 
salvation? How do you see your transition into Christianity as a miracle? Well, I think one of the reasons that maybe we struggle with this is because we have a very, uh, or, or I think it's, it's easy for us to have a narrow view of salvation or what salvation is. So I was really excited when Ryan, in uh, his, his first sermon to us as our, as our pastor, uh, he was passionate to instill in us that the gospel changes everything. And that's what we're going to be learning uh, over the next months, years, hopefully. That the gospel really does change everything. And I believe that to be so true because the gospel, the gospel changes art, it changes politics, work, food, our view of the city, our view of the university. It changes leisure, marriage, parenting, family, charity, death. Every aspect of life is touched and transformed by the gospel. So let me say this. If the statement that the gospel changes everything is true, which I believe it is, and we have yet to experience everything, then there must be aspects of the gospel which we have yet to experience. That's just a little inductive reasoning there, right? If the gospel changes everything and we have yet to experience everything, then there are aspects of the gospel that we still get to look forward to experiencing. So our salvation, as outlined in Scripture, the full orb of what God is doing And our life includes predestination, calling, imputation, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. Salvation is so much more than a moment. And I think maybe that's where we get a little bit hung up. So, again, it's, it's easy. I think it's, it's, it's most natural. And this was my understanding when I first came to Christianity to think of Christ's work on the cross is an entryway to Christianity. It's like the doorway. But once you go in the doorway, then we get on to more serious things like doing more, being better, trying harder, right? We move on to the serious stuff of Christianity when actually the gospel, Christ's work on the cross, is the entire foundation for our Christian life. So salvation very clearly in Scripture has a past present and future aspect to it and to cover the past i'll just quickly mention ephesians 2 5 where it says you have been saved by grace you have been saved so it is a past event it is also a present event first peter chapter 8 uh, philippians 2 12 colossians 1 21 uh I'll just, I'll read through, I won't read the others, but although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaging in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. So here's a sense of of continuing in your salvation, continuing in the faith. And then, of course, future Romans 5, 9, and 10, that actually covers all aspects, past, present, and future. And there's many more, and I don't think this is very controversial to say that salvation is not just a point in time, but has this past, present, and future aspects. I mean, glorification, for example, definitely has not occurred yet. So there is definitely something to come, right? So, okay, I want to set that up um, to maybe give you guys a view that would help you say, okay, how do I view God working in my life, not in terms of a single point where maybe I made some sort of decision, but as a progression of God saving us. And so what I want you to do is I want you to take maybe that point, that point of salvation, and I want you to stretch it out to a line in your mind and think of it again in terms of this past, present, and future. And I want to share with you a little thought 
uh, or a picture that's been incredibly helpful for me in understanding how the gospel interacts with this present age, what is happening to us in this present age. So on this sort of gospel timeline or the salvation timeline or, or the timeline of God working in our lives, I want you to imagine two diverging lines, okay? One ascending upward and one descending downward. The one ascending upward represents your understanding of God's holiness, your discovery of that. The one descending downward represents your understanding or your discovery of your own sinfulness. What you see is that as time progresses, these diverge. And I want you to go back for a moment to the very point at which they converge, the beginning. The beginning, and this is the point first in time. This is the point of your salvation. So what happened at the point of your salvation, your first, the first moment that you became a Christian, is you had some view of God's holiness, you had some understanding of your sinfulness, and you knew that Christ bridges that gap, right? You knew that that's like the bare essentials for what it takes to be a Christian. You had to know those three things. But what happens in the Christian life is as we grow we're continually growing in our understanding of God's holiness. As we learn more about his demands, about his righteousness, about what he calls us to do, about his goodness, we see his holiness increasing, or at least we become more aware of it. And so that's that upward trend. And then at the same time, as we discover more about what God demands of us, we learn more and more about our sinfulness. We see how, fall, how, how far we fall short. And so what happens as we progress in the Christian life is that Christ, the chasm that he, the chasm that he covers continues to grow. And this is what I call gospel dynamics. It's this. As you discover how sinful you are, cheer up, you're worse than you think. So as you discover how sinful you are, you see how far down God condescended and how far down he reached to rescue you. And that assures you of his love for you. You say, wow, God reached down so far. He must really love me. And as you discover his love for you, that frees you up with boldness to go and discover just how holy he is. You say, if he loves me, I can approach him and I can see him for what he is. I can see his holiness. And then that chasm, again, you're discovering his holiness you're discovering your sinfulness. And what that does is as that chasm grows, it convinces you even more of how far down God had to reach to rescue us. And it's a cycle. So as you see that he had to reach out even further, you're even more convicted of his love. And as you're more convicted of his love, you grow even more in boldness and more in your discovery of his holiness and your sinfulness and just how far down. And so it's a cycle of learning about how the gospel bridges this gap between God and man, between him and you. And this, this is how I think right, rightly we should view God's salvation in our lives, not as a single moment, but as a dynamic process of him changing our lives and him rescuing us and our greater understanding of his rescue. So I started by giving Jolene's testimony sort of in a very, okay, this is, this is, it was kind of boring. You know, she never really rebelled. There was no sudden change. But this is what I want to do. I want to cast her testimony in light of this gospel timeline. And I want you to see that her testimony is more of a miracle than mine. In fact, I hope that I would give you the tools that you can say, whatever your story, my story is a more dramatic rescue than what John presented here today. Because my testimony, despite the dramatic visible change, actually isn't all that spectacular. I'm sure many of you have more spectacular stories. So here's, here's Jolene's gospel timeline. I asked her for four events. We could fill this in with 400 if we had enough time, but it began with the missionettes retreat. We don't even know if that's the moment she got saved, but it really doesn't matter because now she sees she's on this road. She sees that she's on the gospel timeline. She is being saved today. So it doesn't even really matter where it began. 
possibly began with that missionettes retreat. She went to Christian college where she got counseling, Bible classes, and this is why that was significant for her growth in this area. Growing up, her father, uh, her father was a drug user, very recluse. He'd go down to the basement. That's where he hung out, had almost no relationship with her. It was very difficult. Uh, and, you know, she remembers one time when they had a dare meeting and her, the, the officer, you know, this is where the officer like comes to the school and talks about drug awareness and everything. And she accidentally said, uh, like, just, hey, that piece of paraphernalia looks like my dad's. And she did not know the consequences of that. And when she realized the consequences of that, she was filled with fear and anxiety that police were going to come into her house and take away her dad. And so that's just one example of the sort of uh, turmoil that that caused in her life growing up. And so uh, relationships with a father were very difficult for her. But here she gets to go to a Christian Bible college where she has to read the scriptures and she's guided by professors who understand how the Old Testament fits together. She reads every book. She writes summaries. She's putting all these things together. And more importantly, whereas at home she would go to youth group, you know, for two hours a week, and then she'd have to live the remaining seven days at home, isolated in a non-Christian environment. For her, it was such a relief just to be saturated with Christian people. That's what she needed at that time. That was such a relief. And it helped her build that relational aspect of Christianity. And more than anything, through the regular worship at the chapel, through counsel with friends and all these things, she grew so much that first year in understanding God as her father. That though her earthly father may may have failed her in many ways, God was her father, and she had everything that she needed in a father through him. So that was one big step on her discovery of how God is rescuing her, of how God is rescuing her. Another one was was going to our previous uh, church where we got introduced to Reformed theology. It was a church that, that preached the gospel in Jesus Christ, regularly every every week and uh one of the key things that really transformed her there was we did this series called called how people change by uh by ted tripp and the basic premise i think jeremy has taught something very similar but the basic premise is that you have this heat the sun and it shines down these are our circumstances and it shines down on our heart and then out of our heart either grows thorny fruit or the fruit of the spirit And our circumstances and this heat, the sun that shines down, it is not the cause of our sin struggles. It is merely the revealing of our sin struggles. And for the first time, Jolene was like, wow, I suffer. I struggle with guilt and shame and fear, selfishness and self-righteousness. She saw that her anger was not a product of her circumstances, but her anger was a symptom of her heart. And so this was breakthrough. This was breakthrough for her in understanding the depths of her sinfulness. And as she did that with the counsel of the gospel, she deepened in her knowledge of how much God loved her. How much God loved her. Now this is where when Jolene and I were talking about this and and I was discussing her testimony with her. It struck us, and this is what's so amazing. Many men have stopped getting drunk in a day. I did that, but many men have done that without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jolene has been transformed in her heart from selfishness and self-righteousness. I have never seen a man do that without the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a miracle. My transformation was very visible. But as far as the quality of that transformation, it was very superficial. It was very superficial. I thank God for it. It was a miracle. But compared to the slow 
rooting out in our heart of our sins, it was nothing to stop drinking in a day, to run away from friends. And so, in that sense, Jolene's testimony is more of a miracle than mine. It just wasn't as visible because it happened over a slower duration of time. But it's, it's still happening nonetheless. It is happening. Another thing that Jolene mentioned on this, on this gospel timeline and this progression of a deeper understanding of God's love for us was Jeremy's sermon on divorce. And it was just a little simple statement. The statement was, you may have a thousand reasons to divorce your spouse. But Jesus had 10,000 reasons to leave you and chose not to. And that little statement, God used in her heart, again, to just convict her, wow, God loves me. I'm that sinful. He's that good. And he loves me that much. So again, there are 400 things that we could fill in that timeline as God is continuing to save save my wife. For me, my gospel timeline, I know it starts April 6, 2004. That's what I know. But the funny thing is, as amazing, and I've had many people say, wow, your testimony is so powerful. I wish I had it. But the thing is, as I progress in my Christian life, that first point on that gospel timeline becomes less and less significant. It really doesn't matter because let me say, I think one of the biggest leaps that I made was understanding Second Peter 1 through 3, where very simply Peter introduces this concept of continually preaching the gospel to yourself. He says that if you were un, he says here in verse 8, if you were ineffective and unfruitful, here's the reason why. Very clearly diagnoses it. So if you're ineffective, if you're unfruitful as a Christian, our temptation is to say, you know what? I need to do more, try harder, be better. I need to pull up my bootstraps and get to it and get serious about my faith. And what Peter says here, here's your problem. You forgot that you were forgiven of your sins. What a counterintuitive idea. He says that the reason that you're suffering as a Christian is because you forgot that you were forgiven of your sins. You've left this gospel dynamic. You've left this circular feedback where you're constantly discovering more of God's love for you. And the only way you can do that, again, is to, is to embrace just how sinful you really are and just how holy God is and just how much you need Jesus. It's to look outward. So, again, just like Jolene's story, I could fill that in with 400 examples and 400 ideas uh, that are progressively growing me in my understanding of God's rescue in my life, how he intervened, more than that first point at which I became a Christian. More than that first point. Peter says in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you. He says we need to be reminded of this constantly. Um, and then maybe one last point that I'll just say, we can even look forward reading Randy Elkhorn's book on heaven. Put something in the glorification stage for me that I'm really excited about. If you guys have never read that book, did you need to read that book so that you can look forward to what's in store for us? But anyways, all of these to me, when I tell my testimony, you know, today I, I cast it in a certain light, but there's so many different themes and aspects that run through it because our stories are so dynamic uh, that this is just one particular theme that ran through it. But there's a hundred themes. There's a hundred themes. Um, one thing that I would also be very miss if I didn't cover, uh, which is my last point, is that um, I, so let me say first, I hope that I've given you the tools to at least re-examine your story of how God is rescuing you and hopefully expand it and see just how amazing that is because I want you to walk away thinking my testimony is awesome. I know it's a miracle. And it, it, it's more than just that day that you entered Christianity. But let me say that if you struggle with your testimony, there is a potential other reason which is that you possibly don't have a testimony at all. There is always the risk uh, in 
Matthew chapter 7, there's one of the most sobering warnings when these people come to Jesus on the day of judgment and they say, Lord, Lord, and he says the most frightening thing that you could ever hear. He says, I don't know you. And what's terrifying about this is that these people are not, uh, these people are not Muslims, they're not Buddhists, they're not atheists, but these are people who are Christian, or who go to church. They are people who go to church, who call Jesus Lord, and can even point to fruit in their life. They can say, I taught Sunday school, I went to prayer meetings, I did these things. These are people who are in the church, but they have never, ever abandoned hope and self and put everything on Jesus. To whom shall I go? Who else has the words of life? That's never been the cry of their heart. What's awesome about this and what Peter says is that no matter where we're at in this timeline, even if we're before the beginning of it, what we need is the gospel. What we need is to see the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's what we need no matter where we're at. So even if you're not not a Christian today, or if you've been a Christian for 20 years, that's what we need to see. We need to see Jesus rescuing us. We need to abandon hope in ourselves. We need to put all of our eggs in the basket of Jesus. Bank on him 100%, all or nothing. That's what we need no matter where we're at in our gospel timeline. And as my closing words, I just pray that... Again, uh, we would examine our experiences in light of what Scripture says about them. And Scripture says that your salvation, when you got saved, no matter what it looked like, was a divine intervention of God into the world. It was a miracle. And what I want you to do, maybe, if you struggle with feeling like your testimony does not bring powerful witness to how God is saving you, Move away from looking for that initial spot and start seeing right now where you see God rescuing you in huge amounts. Look to that. Amen? Father in heaven, I thank you that you rescue sinners. I thank you that we have these stories of how you're working in our lives, and I pray that you would stir up in us uh, a passion to tell others about this, a passion to encourage others about this. And I pray that you would, um, oh, Lord, we just look so forward to being with you in glory and hearing all these amazing stories of how you've rescued us. I thank you that you pursue us down this timeline and that you promise never to abandon us, that no matter where we are on this timeline, you will not abandon us, that you are faithful. I thank you for that. I pray that we would remember that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you most of all for the gift of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.